writing has always been with me. The refuge for me in life was arts and literature. I realized that I had this advantage of becoming a bridge because I had full access to an authentic Kurdish world. I felt a responsibility to tell this story. And what does it mean to come from that level of trauma and still love life and still want to connect with nature and still want to read beautiful poetry and still want to sing a song and cook a good meal. The truth is we need an understanding of differences and appreciation of our identity, our existence, our, the richness of our culture and everything we can offer. Activism comes from a lot of love for life. What's valuable is the social change that comes from each uprising. There is very little understanding of who the Kurds actually are. It felt like an act of victory in and of itself just to be alive, just to breathe, just to say, I'm here, I'm Kurdish. Welcome to Angel City Culture Quest, where art, social justice, and the environment meet in Los Angeles. I am your host, Melina Paris, and I welcome you to this episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Angel City Culture Quest. We've been on a brief hiatus, but still working and planning behind the scenes. So today, we're very happy to return and to bring you our very special guest, author and activist, Ava Homa, to discuss her debut novel, Daughters of Smoke and Fire, and its parallels to the current uprisings in Iran. Hello, Ava. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you for having me, Melina. It's an honor to speak with you. Likewise, here is a little bit of information on our guest before we start. Ava Homa is an award-winning novelist, journalist, and activist. Her words have appeared in The Globe and Mail, BBC, Guardian, Literary Hub, Literary Review of Canada, and more. She has spoken about women's rights across North America and Europe, including at the United Nations Geneva. Ava has a master's degree in creative writing from the University of Windsor and another in English language and literature from Tehran. Her debut novel, Daughters of Smoke and Fire, the story of a Kurdish woman's search for justice and freedom, won the 2020 Nautilus Book Award, was a finalist for the 2022 William Soroyan International Writing Prize, and was Roxane Gay's book club pick. Released in 2020, Daughters of Smoke and Fire is inspired by the life of Kurdish human rights activist Farzad Kamangar and was published to coincide with the 10th anniversary of his execution. This story is suspenseful, emotional, but also humorous. And I must mention, Ava, the Kurdish dishes that you describe that Leila and her friend Joanna make sound utterly delectable. <laughs> I love those wonderful dishes. Can you tell us what Daughters of Smoke and Fire is about? Sure. Daughters of Smoke and Fire is the story of a woman named Leila who, like people all over the world, has dreams and hopes, and all she wants to do is to become a filmmaker and bring the story of her people to the global stage. And that feels important to her because she belongs to a stateless group of people who are heavily marginalized and oppressed and a lot of problems pile up in front of her. Um, but she continues to pursue her dream. One day, her brother, Chia, who is a human rights activist, uh, participates in protests in Tehran. 
and he goes missing. And Layla tries to find out where he is and how she can help him. And in the meantime, she puts her own life in danger. A man comes and proposes that she can take Layla to safety if she marries him just on paper, some kind of sham marriage. And Layla, on one hand, is in a lot of danger. On the other hand, she can't trust this man because she thinks he could be responsible for what happened to her brother. And so she has to make an important decision about her life. A la the suspense that we have in the book. It's important to note that you did not grow up speaking English, yet you've written your novel in English, which is your third language. Where did you find the determination and courage to write what you've called an untold story in a foreign language? That's a very good question. The writing part has always been with me. I've been writing since childhood. I've oriented myself to the world and made sense of the world through the power of stories and the storytelling. Mm. Uh, growing up where I grew up on this border between Iran and Iraq and what, with all the pain and violence and trauma that exists over there, the refuge for me in life was arts and literature, uh, mainly music and fiction, to be very specific. And then when I found my, found a safe haven uh, later in life when I moved to North America, I felt the responsibility to tell this untold story. And the way for me to tell it was to do it in English language. Because even though writing English didn't come naturally to me, it wasn't easy at the beginning, I realized that I had this advantage of becoming a bridge because I had grown up in the Kurdish region. And so I had full access to an authentic Kurdish world, an authentic Iranian world. And on the other hand, I already knew some English because I had majored in English. So I realized that if I work hard enough and dedicate myself to taking my writing to a level where I can create literary work in English, then I will be a bridge because a lot of people who grow up with English, then they don't have access to an authentic Kurdish or Iranian world. And it felt like my calling in life. We all look for purpose, look for meaning, want to know that in this short period of time we have on earth as humans that we do something, we serve something bigger than ourselves. And for me, that felt like what I could accomplish. And it was harder than I thought. And it took me a decade to get this book yeah. out in the world. But I am glad that I persisted and I didn't give up. And I learned a lot in the meantime. Well, I'm very glad you didn't give up either. It's a beautiful story. In addition to being an author and journalist, you're an activist. And in your author's note at the end of the book, you wrote about some very serious questions that you asked as an individual, but that seem to have been drawn from the nature of activism to bring about change. Can you talk about those questions and how this led to the inspiration for the story? So I guess activism comes from a lot of love for life. It's life loving life and seeing that we don't really, as humans, live the best life that we could because a lot of goodness in life, contrary to advertisement, doesn't come from fame or wealth. It comes from kindness. Kindness actually makes us very happy. And this is backed by a lot of studies that says when you are kind to yourself, you are happy, but for a short period of time. But when you're kind to others, that happiness is more sustainable in life. And I think activists are people, if they don't work from, if they aren't only fueled by anger, because it's this combination of kindness and anger, you need to have both to be able to go down this difficult path. 
So this caring for other people, this realization that you're happy when people around you are happier and are suffering less started all of this interest in journalism, activism, writing for me. But obviously, the deeper you go into how geopolitics work, how oppressive human hierarchy, the structure that we have made for ourselves is, the more you lose hope in moments where you think, well, what can I or a group of my friends can do as individuals against this major structural oppression that have been in place for centuries, you know, before, long before I came on this earth, long after I leave on this earth. So there is a lot of moments of really losing hope, losing your aspiration, feeling tired, feeling underappreciated, feeling beaten up for what you're trying to achieve. And I came across, obviously, I have learned and read a lot and admired and loved people like Gandhi, like Martin Luther King, but they were all from a different culture, from a different background. And when I came across these letters written from by a Kurdish, Kurdish teacher in prison named Farzad, it really shook something deep inside me. Now, he's not as big and famous as these international figures I just mentioned, but for me, he really appeared in my life. His writing appeared in my life at a time when I was asking myself these questions that how can you hold on to your hope, your integrity, your efforts, your goal? And what shook me about Farzad, even though he's not the first or the last Kurdish person in prison, is Despite all the hate that he was receiving, you know, he would be tortured because he had a Kurdish ringtone on his phone. He would be tortured because he had an accent when he was speaking. And in all of his writing, which it, it felt so sincere, it was like light coming from his soul because he wasn't trying to get published or to appeal to anyone. He was just expressing his, his, his soul through his writing. He managed to somehow turn all that hatred and ignorance and violence into a lot of love. And so that transformation, that ability, that power in him really shook me. And at the time I was in Canada, I was living as an exile. I was barely making ends meet. I had just graduated with a degree in English and realizing, oh my God, even people who were born and raised in Canada can't do anything with a degree in English. What is an immigrant going to do with it? (laughs) And so... What, what am I going to do? I have to work, you know, three jobs and how can I give up on my writing? It's been with me since childhood. And, and so a lot of questions in my head. And I thought, if he can do this in a nefarious prison with Iran, shame on me if I can't do it in the safety of Canada. So let me get back to writing and let me start by writing his story. And I did. And it, it was very moving because, again, he had touched my heart and what my word touched a lot of readers' hearts. But then I thought, oh, my God, he's still a man, despite everything, every horrible thing he has experienced. He has had the privilege of his gender. What if he had a sister? What if her story looked like? And what if this woman, unlike me, because I had the privilege of, you know, winning a scholarship, getting into a good university, leaving safely. And what if this woman didn't have the privileges that I had? How would then their life intertwine as siblings and how would they find ways to basically expand their world, reach a helping hand to others? First, help yourself, of course, and then try to help others. And that's how Daughters of Smoke and Fire came to be. What an inspiring story that is. My goodness. I can see why he was so large in your heart. The book is very relevant to what is happening now with the protests in Iran. 
And just to bring people up to date, the latest that's been reported is that more than 500 protesters, including women and children, have been killed in Iran since the uprisings began after the death of Gina Masa Amini in September 2022, while she was in custody of the so-called morality police. Thousands of Iranians have been arrested, including at least 20 who could face a death sentence for taking part in protests that have engulfed the entire country. Daughters of Smoke and Fire has been described as being prescient in portraying what's unfolding, but you also mentioned that your character, Layla, may have a special distinction. Can you talk about that, too? Uh, yeah, so Iran is a diverse country that has never acknowledged or valued its diversity. A lot of people, when they hear the word Iran, think about Persians, and Persians are the dominant culture in Iran, dominant language and everything. And it's a beautiful, rich culture, especially its literature, you know, with Rumi, with Hafez, from the classical literature to modern poets and stuff. But what has happened is that they, they are only about half of the population of the country. And so this uh, other 50%, which are other ethnic groups, including the Kurds and the Turks and the Baluch and the Turkmen and Gilak, our identity, our existence, our, the richness of our culture and everything we can offer and bring to the table has been denied, has been suppressed, has been actually demonized. And so diversity has been presented as a threat, as a threat to national territorial integrity, as opposed to as a source of strength to be celebrated. But of course, for as long as there is this ethnic gap and religion, but there's also religious diversity, of course. Um, as long as the gap exists between the dominant group and the other 50% suppressed group, people cannot successfully rise up and overthrow a brutal government. So we need intersectionality. We need an understanding of differences and appreciation of all of that. And we need actually deeper work. We need deeper reconciliation and reckoning for all the injustice that has been done through these ethnic minorities. And so I think for me, I've said it and I will stand by my words, that the only way to actually bring freedom to a country like Iran is by embracing intersectionality. Now, the protests are new in Iran. They have been happening for a long time. But what happened in 2022 is that for the first time, this intersectionality was appreciated. Now, it was really young. It wasn't fully embodied, but it became important. People opened their eyes a little bit to it. Now, what is important about Leila's story is it's for the first time that a story of a Kurdish-Iranian woman is written in, in a novel in English. And so it's like we didn't exist. We don't exist in the consciousness of Iranians. We don't exist within the Western society, even within the academia of you know Middle Eastern studies. There's very little research actually done about Kurdish culture and literature and all of that. And so to break that voicelessness and to make space for yourself in world literature in English was important. And when Gina, this because all of these protests started at the brutal killing of Gina, and to me, that was really important because Dina represented the youth and the women and the Kurds, who are the tree group at the forefront. But again, there is very little understanding of who the Kurds actually are. And Gina shifted that a little bit. And so for the people who are saying, oh, we didn't even know Kurds live in Iran. Who are they? What's their life like? Then Daughters of Smoke and Fire is 
one of the resources out there that would make you actually understand and feel what that experience is like. Exactly. You said it very well. And I'm glad you brought that up, the intersectionality. Because when you mentioned the three groups that have led the protests, you said the youth, the women, and ethnic minorities in one of your articles. You said that Gina Masa Amini, whose death triggered the protests, she's a Kurdish-Iranian woman, and in that sense, Leila's life and Gina's life are comparable. The background that they come from, the desire for freedom and justice that they cherish. And that leads me to your personal story and growing up in a Kurdish province in Iran. Kurdistan is a large mountainous territory where Iran, Iraq, Turkey, and Syria intersect. Can you describe the surroundings briefly and your life as a youth in the province where you grew up? Yeah, it's really complicated. It's really beautiful in the spring, in April especially. The mountains change color into red because of all these poppies that grow in there on the mountains, wildflowers. The air used to be really clean before these past decade and a half where air pollution has affected it but I used to have clean air we used to get a lot of snow which I love playing in the snow in terms of it's a very um, economically it's not advanced and it's been a deliberate policy of the Iranian government even before this Islamic government to keep Kurds in poverty to keep them powerless and voiceless Mm -hmm. so while you know, roads and railroads were built in the rest of the country. A lot of medical facilities were made available, educational facilities. Uh, we were denied all of that. So it's a very impoverished area. And obviously that affects everything because poverty is a train. It just comes with a lot of problems. On one hand, it felt like because Kurds have been targeted because of our ethnicity, it felt like an act of victory in and of itself just to be alive just to breathe, just to say, I'm here, I'm Kurdish. You tried so hard to wipe us out, so we're still here and we're thriving despite everything you put on us. On the other hand, there was always this question in my head that, you know, how can humans do that to each other? It's just the story of genocide should really put humanity to shame. I mean, how wild, how violent we can be to do that. To target a group of people simply for their religion, simply for their ethnicity. And what does it mean to come from that level of trauma and still love life and still want to connect with nature and still want to read beautiful poetry and still want to sing a song and cook a good meal and every joy of life that you're still striving for and it's basically denied from you. And I think what it created in me at the end, it has created such a deep appreciation for life because I realized that people who have depths of grief and where I come from, grief is heavy. Uh, it's multi-present. There's also so much love and so much care. You know, we learn to take care of each other because no one else is taking care of us. And again, with, with grief comes a depth of soul that is rare when you grow up with a lot of comfort and privileges. In the world we live in, there is always an upside and downside into everything. And even though we like to call things good and bad and black and white, the, the truth is there is beauty and power everything if you look carefully. A lot of people think, I am really really happy with my life it's not because I have a lot but because I appreciate everything from the blue sky that people take <laughs> for granted to the tea that I can make and sit down and eat it to the flowers that bloom around me 
taking a walk down the street with my dog is such a pleasure for me. And I, I love the gift, that gift, you know, even though I went through a lot of hardship, every day, every breath, every morning is so much joy. And that's not to say I don't feel pain or I don't get trapped or getting stuck. But then this, this deep appreciation for life brings me back out of those painful moments. That's great. The gratitude that carries us through. It's very important. And you touched on this with all the contrasts and the good and the bad, but you said that you were a child of revolution and war, yet you transformed that turmoil into a piece of literature and art with your book as a way to be hopeful, which you also talked about. So fast forward to the situation unfolding now in Iran and it being so similar to your novel, how does it strike you to again witness what you've written about in the years since you've left Iran? A lot of people I see in media, not just in social media, which is a notorious place, but actually in like big mainstream media saying that, oh, you know, people rose up again and they were crashed and that was that. But I think that's such a short-sighted view of what is happening. What's valuable is the social change that comes from each uprising. People have learned how to take care of each other when they take to the street. They have learned how to stick to each other when the guards come for them. They have learned how to keep their doors open to allowing protesters when protesters are running. Older people who don't, who can't really protest like young people, you see them carry a bunch of medical files and actually go and support the youth. And when they get stopped by the guards, they say, oh, I was just going to see my doctor. I was not protesting or anything. You know, when someone is is horrible, is is executed, but everyone or is arrested, everyone in the community gathers, goes to the home of the parents of that protester, and they try to protect them. They try to give a voice to what is happening by talking, if the parents agree, by talking about this to national, international media. Of course, government puts pressure on families saying you're not supposed to, and that's a big decision for families to make. But my point is, the way people, even like when I see in Kurdistan, where po- people don't really have much, they're willing to give the little that they have to families who are protesting, whose children are protesting, to support each other. And that social transformation is really, really important. I mean, it's a heavily patriarchal culture, but now you see young men chanting in support of women. And that shift is invaluable. And you can't just say, oh, people rose up and they were crushed and that was that. You should see how much that has changed. Because in 1980, for example, when before hijab became completely mandatory, a woman took to the trees and protested. And at the time, men failed to support them. I mean, the society, large area in society failed to support them. If they had not, we wouldn't be in this horrible mess right now. So it's yeah. there's, a, there's a value to that awakening for you to be a man and say, Hmm. It looks like patriarchy might benefit me, but maybe not really. You know right. that it takes a lot of awareness for a young man to know that and to go to the street and chant "woman, life, freedom, woman." And yes. they have their own concerns. Of course, they have their own terrible economy and all of that. So that social shift. It was the first time when ethnic groups chanted in support of each other. Now, I'm not saying that was complete or that was perfect, but it was a really remarkable start. So this social shift. Shouldn't be, it shouldn't be denied. It's yeah. huge. And I want to get to a quote, but before that, with the timing of when your novel was published, I see you as a messenger at the right time. 
This story is about the struggle and survival amidst poverty, oppression, and brutality, and far worse in some cases. Not only is the story prescient for what's happening now in Iran, it gives voice to human struggles and issues of justice and inequity that we're seeing with increased frequency across the globe. Your message is that a victory for women in Iran is really a victory for women everywhere. And at this time, would you like to read a passage from the book for the audience? Yeah, I'll be happy to. I'm going to read the prologue. Okay. A woman alone on the mountain of dust. Invisible boots pressed against my throat, making my breath labored and helpless. And yet I couldn't go back and face my parents or my stifled future. Hidden behind the boulder, I hugged my knees and imagined my rage and pain whirling into a wildfire, burning down all the injustices. Could my father have known what was going on? I wanted to tell him to share this burden with him. My shoulders were already heavy beneath the daily cruelties of living as a woman in Lanasawad, the damn place. This fatigue was incurable. The sun had sauntered down, disappeared behind Lake Srebar, a dozen shades of red burst open along the horizon. Below, the narrow winding asphalt road was the hem around the hill's green skirt, embroidered with clusters of red and yellow wildflowers. The chalet flowers stood elegant and tall, flourishing across the rough Kurdistan plateau, defying borders. I yearned to be a schler, but I was a garden of anguish, of loathing, of torments. My occupied homeland was a birthplace of death. I stood up, my breath now coming in pants. I wasn't hiding anymore. Best of best, I shouted, it's enough, enough. I started down the hill in a tumbling run and found myself unable to stop. Despite the chill of the evening, I started sweating. The wind whipped my headscarves and I gained speed. I flapped as if I had wings. As I ran, a wail escaped my chest. I was headed toward the main road, toward the world of men. The streets belonged to them, judgmental men, hypocritical men. Their honor depended on women, men. Cars hurtled around the curve full of drunk drivers who honked as they spotted me sprinting down the hillside. They were going too fast for this road, too fast for their sluggish reflexes, and too fast for their old vehicle. A white late model car screened down the winding road, kicking up dust. The wind roared in my ear. The white car and whoever was driving it seemed to seek me out as a fellow traveler. I stumbled on a stone, crushing the shiny red poppies in the grass. And as I lurched, my untold stories tumbled inside me like pages ripped from a book and tossed crumpled into the waste paper bin. An overpowering urge to scream my story, to expel it from beginning to end, seized me. Suddenly, I could see the heads of all those curds crushed beneath tanks. Descending the slope at a breakneck pace, my shouts crescendoing, I was unable to stop myself, this crazed woman. Final lunge, and I was airborne. Thank you for sharing that. If you're just tuning in, today we're speaking to author and activist Ava Homa in discussion of her debut novel, Daughters of Smoke and Fire.
Hello, culture lovers. This is your host, Melina Paris. For several months, we have been bringing you inspiring guests along with stimulating content about their work. As with anything, there are costs to keep this podcast going. So if you're able, join me in this quest with your support. Think of it as a cultural tip jar to share any amount that you're comfortable with. Or you can make a regular offering with as little as $4 a month. This will contribute to my ability to continue bringing you the great work of these artists, activists, and others, plus the cultural content that you want to hear about. I appreciate you, and I would be honored to have your support. To join, please go to our Patreon link at patreon.com forward slash Angel City Culture Quest. There, you can also see all of our past episodes, get early announcements, and find more perks to come. Thank you. I want to get to the article that you wrote, and the message is expressed so well in this article. You wrote it in December for the Journal of Critical Race Inquiry, which is an open access electronic journal that advances scholarship on race and racialization in Canadian and international contexts. Your piece is titled, The Path to Freedom in Iran is Through Women and Minorities. In it, you introduce readers to the history of Kurdish resistance to oppression by the Iranian regime, as well as the history of the refrain, Woman, Life, Freedom chanted now by protesters and adopted by activists and others around the world. We will link to Ava's article in our show notes for folks to check out as well. You said the book and the article are just two different contexts, the literary context for it and the journalistic context, because the events are the same. One part of your article that struck me is that you spoke about Gina Masa Amini's authentic name. You've done that across several stories that you've written on these protests. Can you please talk about the importance of the authentic name? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So Mahsa, which is a beautiful name, meaning Mah means moon, and Mahsa means resembling the moon. So it, it talks about, you know, the beauty, the glory of the moon. And mm-hmm. it is a beautiful name in and of itself. But the name Gina, which is such a beautiful coincidence that it has the same etymological roots as the words for woman and life, Jin, Jian. And wow. Jina is the giver of life. And that woman gave life to a movement in her death. But how ironic that that powerful, beautiful name is erased. And why is it erased? A lot of Kurdish people, well, on one hand, the government in Iran has this list of forbidden names. Just imagine a government that doesn't even allow you to choose the names you want for your children. Jina is not on that list. So there are people in Iran right now whose name is Gina. But it talks about having two names, one that connects you to your heritage and one that helps you to assimilate, basically helps you, shelter you from discrimination. And having two names talks about the pressure that people are in on one hand to celebrate and hang on and 
be empowered by their heritage, on the other hand, to shield themselves from discrimination as much as possible. I, it was important for me to talk about the word Gina because that's the name that her mother cries out at Gina's funeral. She uh -huh. cries out, this heartbroken mom cries out the name Gina. So I was thinking that should be the first name that Gina ever heard. That for, Before she went to school, that was probably the only name she would call at home. So that'd be the language of childhood, of affection, of everything that her first exposure to her own identity. But the fact that this name is erased, whereas it's so easy to mention both names, talks about, again, the importance of intersectionality, how the erasure of that name is a representative for the erasure of ethnic identity in the same sense that a headscarf is a symbol and the tip of the iceberg for gender inequality, right? So emphasizing that was, was important to me to talk about the fact that for as long as you're afraid of women, you're afraid of ethnic minorities, you cannot topple the Iranian government because they're, they're basically advocating for the same rules. I see a lot of, I don't know if I can call it hypocrisy, but maybe a short-sightedness in an attempt to have freedom and justice only for yourself, but not for others. Mm -hmm. And that never helps. That never works. You know, if you expect the Iranian government to, to give you your rights and have some sense of justice. You want to ask for the same justice for everyone. It's not going to work. Exactly. And I just wanted to clarify, so is the authentic name deliberately not used in public? In some cases, you know, in my own story, uh, Leila was supposed to be named Nishma, right? right. Nishma is homeland, but homeland, the word homeland is banned in, in oh. Iran because it's a Kurdish word. And so Layla ends up calling her doll Nishma, right? <laughs> and so if your name is utterly banned, then yeah, home with your friends, with your neighbors, you get called by that name. But as soon as you enter an official, a government setting, like a public school or university, or then that's where you're called by your name that's supposed to hide your ethnicity. Because you can't tell by looking at someone whether they are Arab or Persian or Kurdish. Exactly. It's just almost a dual identity. Wow. Thank you for explaining that. Before we go farther, could you please talk about why did you leave Iran and was it difficult to do so? Well, I felt really suffocated in Iran. And as I as my activism and journalism grew, things got harder and more dangerous for me. So I basically, in a sense, took refuge in a calmer, more peaceful place, but I did it through education. So I, I was lucky enough to get admission, but also gain scholarship because I didn't have the money for my education. And then to even get a visa, which was even harder that, than uh, getting uh, admission and scholarship because uh, Tehran Ottawa relations wasn't good at the time. And then they wouldn't allow you. You can apply as a refugee, but you can't apply for a student visa, get, get to Canada, and then apply as a refugee. And so because they were worried about that, they wanted to make sure you're in what they call an authentic mm -hmm. uh, student. And so I gained, uh, I think it helped that I had won a scholarship, and it, had, it helped that I already had an established career in Iran by the time I left, so they felt like they had things to go back to. I just could not have lived a healthy life, healthy, balanced life back where I was born and raised. And so it, it wasn't easy to leave. But in a sense, I am grateful that I, I was able 
to to leave and now really appreciate the peace and this the relative safety of where I live. That's wonderful. There's some points that we did touch on, I think, through our conversation, but I want to mention that the history of Kurdish oppression and crackdowns on the Kurdish protests are worse than they are for the Iranians, specifically in their provinces. Is that correct? Right. So if you're Persian, you know, in a lot of big, richer cities, for example, they never use the real bullets. They kill, right. they use blanks, whereas they use real bullets in Kurdistan and Baluchistan, where ethnic minorities live. Um, more than 60% of the children that were killed belong to ethnic minorities. The level of violence, the artillery that's deployed in these regions, the everything is different. They really act like they don't, it's like if they are just brutal in, in Tehran and Shiraz, then they are like occupiers. They're acting like occupiers and fascists when it comes to more impoverished area. And that's why there is more resistance in that part of the world as well. And that's why they have been at the forefront um, of the resistance mm-hmm. as well. So there is stronger oppression, but there's also more organized uh, and more deliberate resistance. And we did talk about this, the younger generation, they're at the forefront. They want to end the regime. They don't want to work to change it. And you stressed the younger men are supporting the women now. But to your point, they need the intergenerational support and to fight the brutality of the state, as well as the limiting beliefs of their own culture. That's been a major change. Yeah, and a major struggle, right? So we have this Gen Z that has awakened and is no longer really afraid of women and minorities the way their parents and grandparents were. Mm-hmm. But they, on one hand, they go to the streets and fight this brutal government. On the other hand, they have to come home and fight the ignorance of their own parents and grandparents. And that's really hard. And And again, it might take much longer for this movement to be fully successful but unless people actually wake up and support the youth. And I see that the society goes through this moments of unity and appreciation and support and then goes through fear and then opens up and expands and embraces marginalized group and then is again contracts through fear. And mm-hmm. I think it's just a natural process mm-hmm. how humans, how relationships, how the universe works. And I really hope that these moments of expansion, these moments of trust continues to grow within the Iranian society um, if they want a better future for themselves and for their children. It's an evolution, really is, yeah. And as you noted, the men help themselves in helping the women because you can't liberate yourself while oppressing another group, which you had said. You said our liberation is tied to each other. And in Daughters of Smoke and Fire, what you've created is this beautiful tapestry of all of this beauty and pain. And I really encourage our listeners to check this book out and to read it because it's a roadmap for history and culture and resistance. Thank you. I appreciate that. Can you tell us what can people do to raise awareness or help in terms of what's happening now in Iran? So going back to what you pointed out, first of all, understand that it's not just something happening in some faraway land, that 
what affects a group of us directly affects the rest of us indirectly and that victory for women in Iran is victory for women everywhere. And I say that based that on Martin Luther King's insight that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that's really true. Yes. And success for justice uh, empowers justice everywhere. So have that inner understanding that their victory or anyone's victory is going to affect you and your children and your grandchildren. So for generations to come and having internalized that, don't do it as an act of charity or at all. I'm just not helping people out there understand that this is for all of us and we're all in it together. And once you have internalized that, then you know in your own life how you can help. Well, first of all, you can always reach out to your representative, write to them, call them up. I know they don't always answer. People say, oh, they take three months and they send me a form letter. Yes, but they do count the number of emails and phone calls uh, that they go do. to their offices. They do. So that's yes. important for you to take that three minutes and write a sentence and say, what are you doing to help Iranian people um, in their the fight for justice? Um, on the other hand, in your own personal life, depending on who you are and what you do, then you would know how to incorporate, for example, Iranian artists and writers. Do you have a book club? Do you run a museum? Do you have a local uh, community you're connected to? You can. There are so many ways you can, you can actually help this cause and know that, you know, you're helping all of us by, by doing that. It's making and a difference. You, yeah, watch a movie by an Iranian director. Get a better sense of what it's actually like beyond the stereotypes that exist about that. Yes, thank you for that. We're in the season of film festivals now. So what is coming up next for you, Ava? Well, I completed a second novel, my third book, oh. called Silence Between the Notes. And right now, my wonderful agent, Chris Kepler, is looking for a good home for it. So I hope that one finds a home. In the meantime, I have started writing another novel, but it's in its early stages, so I'm not ready to talk about it yet. Mm -hmm. But please wish me luck with finding a good home for silence between the notes. Good luck with that, and congratulations. I'm sure it will find the right home. So please tell us, where can people find you and your work? Well, I'm pretty much available everywhere. My website is avahoma.com. You can also access me through social media. I also have a contact form through my website. I'm more likely to respond to emails than to social media messages, but I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and I'll be happy to connect with your audience anywhere that works for them. And the book is available as an audiobook, as an ebook, oh. paperback, hardback, anything that you're used to, your way of uh, listening to the book or reading books in whatever form that works for you. The book is available. That's wonderful to know. I read the book and it was a crunch, but I'm so happy I finished it. But it's wonderful to know that it's an audio book too. And I almost feel like going back and getting the audio version just because it's so beautiful. The woman who reads the book is a very talented actress and I think she does a really good job and oh. her voice is calming enough to carry you through a book that's admittedly not easy to read but I hope that this book would enrich your audience and the reader's life in our world and in so many other ways I hope it will be a way of expanding their consciousness it definitely will and just to remind people we will link to Ava's article in our show notes for people to read there 
Thank you so much, Abba, for taking time today and discussing your wonderful book with us and a little bit more about you. It's been wonderful. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate all the thoughts, all the work you put into this conversation, and I feel enriched by it. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.